everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Volley. I'm Carolyn April. And as always, I'm looking for my good buddy, Seth Robinson, out there in the cold Chicago winter. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, if I if I weren't already housebound from the pandemic, I'd be snowed in. Um, and I mean, you are more than I am. I know, but yeah, we we finally got a decent snowfall for the winter, and it's it's one of the bigger ones that I can remember since since I've been here. I always gauge it by how high I'm having to throw the snow when I'm shoveling it. Um, and yeah, oh, yeah. We're having to toss it quite a bit here. Oh, so tough. Just try living in New Hampshire. <laughs> well, I mean, I do have uh, a, a young man at home that uh, helps me with this. So that's good. I do. I do. Rec- I, I recollect when I lived when I was in college out in uh, Chicago, it, that it it wasn't so much snow because I grew up in New England and it was always a lot of snow and cold. But there it was just freezing all the time, but it not accompanied by a, tons of snow, not the huge like you know foot plus dumps of snow that we seem to get here on a regular basis yeah it's definitely going to be cold next week um and yeah you know this one wasn't you know anything record-breaking or or super newsworthy i guess but one one of the problems was it was all wet like you know if if it's nice fluffy powder you know i can go out and throw that around but this stuff was like all slush just killing me yep that'll the little wrench your lower back pretty quick yeah yeah oh, well so lots going on this week right yeah aside from from the snowfall it's been a little bit of a busy week for for tech i guess and it, it feels like it's been a while uh and we when we did our year-end wrap-up last year we kind of talked about the fact that a lot of stories that might have surfaced a little bit more got buried because of the pandemic and the election and everything. But uh, this did seem like a busy week. So we were thinking that we might just do a quick lightning round of, of some of the news items from this week before we got to our main event, uh, which is some new research that we conducted. So I think the first thing that we noted that we want to talk about just a tiny bit is the whole GameStop, Wall Street bets thing that happened which to me was kind of interesting because I, I don't pay tons and tons of attention to the market. Um, so I didn't necessarily understand all of the ins and outs you know, that were happening. But to the extent that I did, it seemed much more like a market story than a tech story. And, and it seemed like people wanted to make it a tech story, kind of almost saying everything's about tech these days. But I to me, the, the the technology part of it was the fact that they were able to organize on Reddit. Now, what they did after they organized, you know, they didn't necessarily leverage, you know, technology all that much. They, there was the Robinhood app, uh, which, which creates, I think, a, a different opportunity to trade, you know, than having to go through some more traditional uh, means. But you know, especially the more it's been reported, it just feels like more of a market thing, and and the technology thing, and like how. It, it allows for organization, uh, especially at a very large scope, uh, you know, and then maybe some democratization, you know, that's noteworthy. Um, but, but mostly it was a market thing. No, I totally agree. And again, I'm not completely up to speed on all of the ins and outs of how this actually went down, but I agree with you that it's more of a market thing. And just anecdotally, I will share that um, the pandemic uh, in my world, I have I know 
multiple people who have taken to day trading and doing all kinds of things that they normally don't do in their in their regular work life. So it's kind of become a thing. Now, technology here was a you know a it helped be I guess the platform for the people who were involved in doing this, um, but I don't think that it was the main uh, storyline that we need to address. It was more of the, you know, the conduit, if you will, uh, for allowing some of the traders and people that were involved in this whole GameStop Robin, ha- Robin Hood thing um, to do what they were doing. Uh, but um, it's, it's very interesting. And I like the way that you use the word democratization, because that's why I brought up the point of knowing people now that are simply like on their free time doing day trading at home. And it, it in some ways sort of knocks big wall street off their pedestal a little bit. Um, whether you decide that's good or bad, but that was my takeaway. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, the more reporting that's been done, uh, the more it kind of turns out that big wall street ended up getting in on this anyway. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the man didn't get stuck, you know, no. quite as much as people were hoping. Um, but, you know, the second thing that, uh, that happened, I think just, just yesterday is that Jeff Bezos is stepping down as the CEO of Amazon, handing things over to Andy Jassy, who previously had been running Amazon web services, uh, and so there's a lot, you know, being written about his, his tenure and what he's done with Amazon. And, you know, for all of the, the big tech companies that are out there, I think they're all unique in kind of what they bring to the table. And I think there's a case that could be made that Amazon is, is maybe the most influential of, of all of them. To me, the thing that Amazon brings that, that is really interesting is the way that it intersects with the real world. So they're, they're online, they're, they're leveraging the internet. And I think uh, Bezos probably understood that more than a lot of people. I think he understood what the internet was bringing and the scale that it was bringing. Again, you know, this, this scale and scope problem. Uh, but he also then connected it with the physical world. And so now you see Amazon doing things like reaching out to help with, you know, the vaccination or, or talking about, you know, getting into healthcare, or doing some things that uh, they, they can now do because they have mastered supply chain, they've mastered distribution, you know, they've mastered some of these things that that they had to in order to really take advantage of the internet side of things. Uh, and I think that's kind of their secret sauce. Uh, and, and the thing that he's going to be one of the things that he's going to be the best known for. Well, the the irony, I think about, uh, and probably the genius of Bezos is that for the majority of the beginning years of Amazon, they ran at a deficit. They were not profitable at all. And he just kept forging ahead despite that. And it was not just stubborn optimism, but it was his business model. He kind of knew this thing was going to take off eventually. And so he was willing to live um, with no profitability for a very long time, many years. I mean, it's 60 minutes to the piece about it, you know, so I'm not being original here, obviously, but, uh, and it's, it's astonishing. And now Amazon, which was a book seller originally, um, is kind of permeated all of our lives, like it or, or hate it. Um, particularly during this pandemic, I don't think I have, I don't go out much, but when I do, I do, I always, you know, uh, 
pass on the road a uh, Amazon, you know, van delivering to somebody for something. So he certainly had a, a vision and I don't want to, you know, kneel at his feet, but um, it's, it's, it's fairly dominant and impressive. I don't know where things go next, but it's the kind of model that I think that the average consumer in particular is now so used to that I don't know how you go away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, they've been very influential and in a lot of ways they've become indispensable. Um, you know, looking back over the past year, if you had to start, you know, dropping companies that you interacted with, they might, they might be the last one that you would have dropped. Um, so uh, really amazing story. Uh, and like, like you said, really interesting to see where they go next. Um, and, and I, I'm assuming that one of the things that he is not wanting to do in the future. And the reason that he would have stepped down, you know, from this role is, uh, that there's a lot of regulation coming, uh, and he probably didn't want to be dragged to Capitol Hill, you know, too often. And I think that's kind of the last item that popped up this past week or so is this feud between, Apple and Facebook, as Apple has been um, changing the rules around how users can opt into being tracked for advertising purposes and other things. Uh, Facebook has obviously taken issue with that. You know, there's a lot of back and forth. And this is the type of thing I think that's going to, you know, somewhat get decided between the companies, but also probably land in front of um, the government, you know, and people making decisions about these things as we've gotten to, again, you know, this, this scale uh, and, and the level of influence that technology has on our society. I think we've talked about regulation a lot. We're going to continue talking about it. It's going to be a huge item to watch, especially with a new administration. Uh, and, and this feud that's happening between these two companies is, is just a sign of things to come. Yeah. I don't have tons to add to that because I agree. And I think we have discussed regulation quite a bit, especially among the, you know, the big tech firms and what that all means. Um, it's always interesting to see, uh, you know, uh, two companies of that size bicker with one another. Um, but I think ultimately it's going to come down to not a decision between the two of them, but probably regulation of some sort that will come down from the government or the SEC or whomever, um, whatever body is, is in charge of this. But it just hammers home the point that the, some of these companies have gotten so influential, and we mentioned three of them here, uh, and that it's, it, it's in my lifetime, I've, I've not seen this, you know, other than like large car manufacturers back in the day, and, and maybe some industrial firms or oil companies, but it's, it's interesting to see the trajectory that big tech has taken. For sure. Yeah. So I uh, wanted to quickly touch on those three things um, since, again, we're kind of getting back into some tech news as, as, as the world is moving forward. But like I said, the main thing that we wanted to talk about this week uh, is something that we didn't get a lot of opportunity to do last year, which is talk about our research. You know, our, our research schedule, like so many other things, got a little disrupted uh, throughout the pandemic. Yep. Uh, but we're, we're getting back on track and you have gathered some data. Uh, we're doing things a little bit differently this year in terms of writing reports, but we're still gathering the data uh, and we can still talk about it here. So um, 
you want to kick things off with your new MSP study? Indeed. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited. Um, this is the latest iteration of the trends and managed services study that we have done for ad nauseum, like many years, many, many years. Um, we did one last year. Um, so we have some good trending data and, um, it, there's a few interesting data points. And so Seth and I will talk out some of them. Um, we kept the survey reasonably similar to what we did last year, but we added a, a few separate sections of new questions. And one was, you know, the elephant in the room. You have to ask companies who are answering this survey, you know, how COVID has impacted them. So I think I'll start there. Um, and I think one of the big surprises is that uh, almost eight in 10 MSPs said that the pandemic situation has not hurt their businesses at all. They've either remained stable or in some cases, they said they've come out ahead revenue wise from the previous year. And so that's a head scratcher a little bit because most MSPs are small companies. You know, we're talking fewer than 20 employees, often 10 employees. And so, you, as we all know, we read in the news every day, we've been dealing with this for a year, that SMBs have been the hardest hit. And many of them serve SMB customers. So um, this is either um, aspirational thinking, a power of positive thinking, or there's something else going on here. And so I try to think about some of the um, reasons that many of them profess to say they weren't impacted. And, and one makes a lot of sense. And I've heard this from in other areas and that, um, and that is the overnight move that we had to make to remote work. So big corporations, small corporations, small companies, all had to send their employees home. And if they were working with a managed service provider, or even if they weren't, they immediately needed one to try to help manage these home environments. There may have been employees that are now working from home who didn't even have the, you know, the correct equipment, didn't have a laptop, didn't have networking set up, didn't have the right broadband, whatever it happened to be. And they needed, companies needed some centralized organization to help them manage that. And that's what I think I would attribute uh, to the low reporting of um, real negative impact to business in the last year because of the pandemic. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I would add that the other thing that probably is playing in here, especially because we were targeting MSPs a little bit more than the overall IT channel, including, you know, people who maybe mainly still make their money through reselling, you know, products. Um, if, if, if you're targeting MSPs, you know, for the past decade plus, whatever, the, the whole thing about MSPs has been recurring revenue and you're building recurring revenue around those pieces of technology that are kind of required for a business to run these days. And it's become more and more required. And so I think that, you know, even as businesses were, were struggling, you know, to whatever extent they were, they were staying up and running, they needed their technology to be up and running. Um, so if, if you had looked at people that were selling, you know, reselling, installing, you know, new hardware, I would guess that would have taken more of a hit. Um, but the fact that so many of these companies are plugged into maintaining critical infrastructure, I think made them kind of pandemic proof. And, and again, like you said, there could be some aspiration in here, you know, a little bit of, um, 
wishful thinking, you know, even in the rear view mirror. But uh, I, I would think that, that the model that they have chosen helped them be a little bit more resilient, you know, as times got tough. No, I totally agree. I mean, there is a lot of power in being a provider who's on contract with you and, and is in control of your infrastructure and, you know, your user environment. And if you want to try to stay afloat as a small business, you just can't cancel that out overnight because who's going to take that over. So you're right. There's a, there's a certain level of um, stickiness, uh, if you will, um, between an MSP and their customers um, that, that keeps them from, you, you know, uh, cutting them off because they can't, and they may not have the capability as an end customer to take over those IT responsibilities and capabilities if they did decide we can't afford this MSP anymore. So there's a trade-off there. So I, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. So, okay. Other thing from the study, which is an interesting one is pricing. I get more questions about um, MSP pricing and how you should model it and what, you know, what you should do with it than almost other, well, other than how many MSPs exist in the United States, which is probably the biggest question I get. But secondly, it's about pricing. And for the better part of 10 years, I have always predicted that the pricing model would probably change from per user to per device. And I have been consistently wrong uh, until now. <laughs> So uh, last year's MSP study, we asked, how do you price? And we give them a drop-down list of a number of different choices. And it's always been per user. And it was per user last year as well. This year's study, um, pat on the back to me, it could be a complete fluke, but it's per device pricing. That has eclipsed the, the old per user standard. And it's been by seven percentage points, which is pretty significant. Um, and I, my argument has always been, and shout out to all you MSPs out there. So, you know, tell me if I'm crazy or what, but my argument has always been, why would you charge per user? That's an individual human versus per device. Cause that individual human user probably uses three devices on average. Um, makes sense to me. You may not be able to charge as much as you did for the individual user, but taken in the aggregate a, across three devices, it would end up being more money. Well, apparently this is what's happening right now based on this data that we have. So I'm feeling slightly vindicated, Seth. Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, you, you held on and, and luckily, <laughs> you know, the truth came out. It didn't have to be like some kind of posthumous uh, recognition that you got. So <laughs> Um, it happened in your lifetime, uh, or at least it seems to have, I mean, like you said, it's, it's a big swing. Um, we always, you know, take a close look at those and we're curious to see if, if that sustains year over year, but I think your, your reasoning makes sense. And I, I wonder, you know, how much of, of the per user pricing was just based on legacy stuff from working with vendors that would, you know, charge per seat, uh, and maybe some of the services that they offer. Like if you're offering help desk services, well, it's the users that are asking for help desk services, not the devices. But if you're offering network management services, you're right. It's the devices that are hanging off that network, not you know the the users that are in place. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's uh, really interesting to see that flip. And you know, as we 
go forward with this study, you know, throughout the year, talking with people about it, I'll be interested to hear some of the reasoning behind what caused this change, you know, especially in a year where you might think that um, changing things dramatically like this, you know, was not something that a lot of companies would have wanted to do. I wonder if some of the work at home thing had something to do with this. So you had all these workers who might have gone to their desktop in headquarters are now at home working off various, you know, more devices and all disparate. And, and I mean, I don't know, but that's one of the, my little theories that that may have had some influence in the last year. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, you know, as, as you're working from home more and you need support for, the different devices that you're using and, and that you're using in different ways, you know, to your point, that kind of becomes a, a device issue, not a user issue, you know, so the user has two to three different problems. Um, and if you're only charging for the user, then you're kind of only, you're leaving something on the table. Yep. Agreed. So, all right, a few more ones, uh, uh, data things we want to get through from the study, because they're pretty interesting. So, we always ask the standard, what do you offer in your portfolio type question? And um, for the last couple of years, we've been asking uh, MSPs if they're getting into the area of what we will colloquially call higher level services. Um, this is, we're talking about consulting services, business related consulting to help companies you know, do their digitalization initiatives. Uh, compliance audits, things that uh, that really are, they're technology focused, but they're not. They're also more business focused. And they also are services that many of these MSPs can charge more money for. So they're lucrative. They There's a lot of profit in these services. And companies, a lot of MSPs who are more traditional have not gotten into these areas, but we're seeing more and more are and we've seen an increase from last year to this year of companies who are just out of the gate selling these um, and it's added to their bottom line. And I think it's smart. It shows something that um, like Seth, you said, you know, MSPs are on a recurring revenue contract type basis with customers. So at some point in order to make more money you have to move beyond some of those help desk network monitoring and basics and move up the stack. And we are seeing that this is this is happening and customers are actually uh, receptive to it. You know, many of them are valuing these services. They're like, all right, we use you for this, but if you can help me figure out how to cut costs in this department or make sure I'm in compliance with whatever, you know, regulation I need to be in compliance with. And it's encouraging to see that uh, many MSPs are starting to embrace this because it, it, it requires some training, higher level type of staff, you know, a, a, you know just a different vernacular entirely. Uh, but this is the way to, to elevate your business. Yeah, these were the data points that actually jumped out the most to me that I, I found the most interesting because as I've been working on emerging technology and how emerging technologies are kind of making their way into IT, into enterprise IT, uh, and, and thinking then about how channel firms would respond to that. I've been thinking a lot about the business models. And I wrote a blog last year that you probably remember because I had you review it, talking about <laughs> four different business models that I 
kind of wanted to keep an eye on, you know, over the, over the next year. And I think three of them are really familiar to us, you know, and it's kind of, you know, the VAR reselling, you know, very product centric, you know, I think the one that a lot of these, you know, end uh, of the chain companies started with because it was all about distribution. Um, there's still a lot of that going on. And mm-hmm. then there's managed service and then there's consulting. You know, I think all three of those we've been pretty familiar with for a while now. And then the fourth one to me is, I'm not sure quite what we'll end up calling it, but it's something around like solution building. So these companies that aren't just taking, you know, vendor product and they're not just managing something that gets installed, they're building new solutions, you know, being creative with it, maybe creating their own IP and software uh, or they're automating workflow uh, for for a customer. And I I think that's something different than consulting. And I don't think we're, we're seeing some of that, but we're not seeing nearly as much of that as we are. I think the other three and obviously very few companies are going to be, you know, pure play any one of these things, which is where we start to get, you know, a little hung up, we kind of, we, we tend to ask, you know, are you an MSP that does consulting? You know, well, then they're, they're kind of just a technology firm that has multiple offerings, right? So we always get, you know, a little hung up on that. But I, I'm really interested to see how these four models evolve, how they build on each other, how an, you know, an individual firm would utilize multiple different ones in order to ultimately deliver value to their clients. Yeah, I, what we've found in all of the studies is that most of these MSPs are hybrid. So they do all of that, like the base level stuff, like you said, product centric. And then they move up the food chain because most companies, if a customer asks for something, they will, you know, provision it. They'll deal with it. They'll do it. But um, I think the concept and the idea, and some, there are lots of companies out there that are doing it, uh, your own intellectual property and developing some process. Typically it's a process, not a product that, or a consulting, um, you know, model that you replicate, you know, across various customers is something that um, we're gonna see proliferate in in coming years, at least among more savvy uh, MSPs and, and other channel firms, because the line is blurred, I think, is blurring, I should say, uh, between vendors and manufacturers and they make it all and they, you know, and the, the delivery providers in the channel who um, also can come up with their own ideas and their own products and their own mostly processes, as you said. So it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to talk about because like you you said in the notes you gave me, you know, as much as these firms that you surveyed are moving towards these higher level services, kind of the, the, the bread and butter, some of the common things are still really where they're mainly focused, right? And so, so you, you're trying to have these conversations and you're trying to talk to firms that are doing one thing as kind of their day-to-day, you know, that's where their revenue stream is really focused, but they also want to expand into something else. Uh, and and those, two, th- those two things can be a little bit of separate conversations, but they're, they're driven by the complexity of the IT landscape today. Uh, that There's so much going on that there are multiple different opportunities and you can, you can be, you know, pure play in any of these business models and, you know, be completely successful, 
or you can mix and match a little bit. Yeah, I mean, um, consistently when we do this study, the, the items that uh, MSPs identify as what they sell are still those table stakes things, you know, help desk, storage, basic network monitoring. I don't think that goes away. And, and the reason is it's just foundational. You have to offer that. Um, and, and, and it's probably not what you make the most money off of, but it's sort of like um, having a provider in your home say, you know, we can offer you like all this cool stuff, but we don't do the cable or the internet, you know, it's the basics. You have to have somebody who does like the hookup and, and, and makes things work. Um, and then, you know, you can go on from there. So that's true. And I don't expect uh, the table stakes items to ever go away. They're just basics and they almost uh, are, you know, things that a company can't go to market without. Um, one of the interesting things, though, this year is that um, we talk a lot about emerging technology, and I don't even know if Internet of Things fits in that category anymore because it's becoming pretty uh, ubiquitous in a lot of industries. But we've seen that. That was one of the surprises from the study this year. But we saw the IoT services um, rise in the items that MSP said are in their portfolio this year. So you had all that table stake stuff uh, and then you had IOT really close up there. And we've talked about this a lot. I wrote a lot about this in a report from last year uh, because it's becoming an area that MSPs are, are very involved in. And I will tell you why I think, because I think there's, uh, there's an on-ramp. So, and you can get involved in a few different areas and you don't have to expand. So if you wanna just do IOT from a hardware perspective, install the sensor, sell the sensors and whatever it is that a company needs installed and that's all you do, that's fine. As an MSP, you then can be in charge of monitoring and managing those nodes, just like they are any other thing that is on the network and then ultimately, you're, you're, you are collecting data because all of those sensors are collecting tons of very important data and very unimportant data, depends. And what you do with that as an MSP is either to just print out a, you know, a spreadsheet and send it over to your customer, or uh, as a holy grail, you actually do some analysis. This goes back to our consulting conversation, do some analysis on that data and then be able to make prescriptive, you know, uh, provide prescriptive advice to your customers about what you're seeing. Um, I don't think most MSPs are at that point yet, but they could get there. Um, so I, I understand and why IoT is is a good, you know, is becoming one of those areas that's moving up the chart. Yeah, I, I've made the point in the past that IoT is similar to cloud, that you've got a, a part of it that can look like very established technology, you know, and that's that's the part that you're describing, that you can sell, install, support, maintain, monitor these devices the same as you would a printer uh, or, or anything else, you know, that's on the network. And so the business model hasn't really changed, you know, and so when, when we're talking about IoT, if, if that's the activity that's happening, 
I don't know how much, you know, there is to talk about other than saying, you know, the, these vendors and these distributors offer these products now. So just fold them into your portfolio. Then there's the part of it that, you know, with cloud, it would be like reconstructing the workflow or with IOT, like you're talking about, it's doing the data analysis and plugging that into operations and changing operations in some way. And that's a completely different activity. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are a lot of firms out there that are interested in doing that, but it's a new trick for them. And, and so when we're talking about IOT in particular, I think that it's important to try to pull those two pieces apart and, and say, which piece are we talking about here? For a lot of other emerging technologies, there, there's really not much of, of an established play. Like you said, IOT kind of has the on-ramp. If you're talking about AI or blockchain or a few other things, it, it, it's really this solution you know, and this consultative approach or this, um, this solution providing approach that you would have to embrace in order to understand how that technology is possibly going to change operations for your client. Yeah, I'd agree. IoT, I think, stands and is in a different category in, in a sense because it does have um, different ways that you can interact with it. And it can be very traditional on the hardware side, and then you can kind of move up the stack. And that is very different from other. Uh, emerging techs like AI and, and and those that are, I hate to use the word amorphous, but I'm using it, but they're just sort of enabling technologies that are built into something else. And it's not the same as something you would outright sell. So we've had lots of discussions about that. And I don't think we're ever going to stop having that conversation. Right. We've also had lots of conversations about cybersecurity. And uh, that would be the final point I wanted to raise about the data that I've seen from this particular study, uh, we've heard a bunch about MSPs being sort of uh, a vulnerability spot for hackers who would like to um, not really hack the MSP for its stuff, but in f- get access to everyone, every customer that is on the MSP's network that they are monitoring. Um, which makes that a lot more powerful. So, yeah, uh, and this has happened. We've had a, a guest, I think, I don't know, remember when John was on Tippett, but he talked a little bit about this and it's been in the news. We've had the solar winds issue that we've discussed. Um, but we asked the question of whether MSPs, this is the rank and file MSPs are concerned about this and they are, they're very concerned, you know, so they've been, kind of stepping it up in the last year they've said they've you know they've increased their security budget um, they're investing in you know the kind of staff uh, that will be able to deal with these sort of uh, issues and try to proactively prevent them uh, but I, I think the MSP as that sort of central point to access a bunch of other networks is a real issue that we're going to be dealing with I think that security budget one is is maybe the most important here that you know we've been talking for quite a while from an end user perspective that because security is increasing in importance because companies are becoming more digital whatever they spent on security in the past they they're going to have to spend more it, it just it, it's um it, it's a business item not so much a part of the technology you know part of the IT budget um it's, it's become its own discipline and you know, MSPs or channel firms, 
certainly don't want to fall into the trap of saying, oh, great, you know, all the end users are increasing their budgets, so they're going to buy more stuff from me. Well, no, you're, you're an end user too in, in this example, right? You have to increase your budget. Um, and, and in some cases, kind of like you're describing, they, they might have even more reason than your average you know, dentist office or whatever it is, uh, because hackers have discovered that these companies are a portal into many other companies. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they, they have even more reason to uh, improve their security posture. Yeah, there's all kinds of um, implications here. Like, you know, they need to think about um, from a legality standpoint, a lot of MSPs may need to rewrite SLAs accountability becomes really important here. Uh, you know, many do this already, but n- many don't. And, and so not only the investment in the security budget is important, but rethinking how if you're going to be a conduit for hackers to reach your customers, that needs to be a discussion up front. And if I were a customer, for instance, I would have a lot of questions like, so how do you prevent against this? What, you know, um, if something happens, who's accountable, you know, what's the recourse? So all of those are very important and it sort of changes the boilerplate service level agreement conversation, I think in a lot of ways. And so a lot of MSPs are gonna have to think about that. For sure. All right. Well, uh, lots of interesting data there. Like I said at the beginning, we are making some changes to the way we do some of our studies this year. Not every study is going to have a full report like it has in the past. And this study is one example. There's not going to be a a full written report, but I know we're working a lot with some of the other internal teams on types of content that might get created around this study and some studies coming later this year. Uh, so I would just encourage everyone to keep an eye on the CompTIA website, keep an eye on CompTIA social channels uh, for some new ways that we're going to be sharing research uh, on this study. And like I said, throughout the year. Yeah, there will definitely be a, a number of deliverables that are not reports uh, based on this data. And there's a lot more data. This was just sort of top line, high level stuff. Um, so Please look for it in the future. And Seth, always good to connect with you. Yep. Yep. Uh, I We will talk again in a couple weeks, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Talk. Well, stay warm until then. I will. Thanks. See you.